Hey, everybody. Welcome to Infinite Money Glitch, our show about crypto, business, and everything in between. I'm Zach. I'm here with my co-host, Martin. And today we have a very special guest, Mr. David Phelps. David, welcome to the show. Slightly special, slightly special guest. It's not Vitalik. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, not, not that special. It's not that special. Like, you know, like it's kind of special. Yeah. It's good to see you, man. Thanks for, for coming on. Hey, what's up? How's it going? <laughs> Everything is good. Um, I guess to dive right into it, tell us, who are you and what was your earliest memory of the internet? Uh, yeah, I'm David. Um, I was trying to, I was, you know, you, you sent me these questions like three minutes ago and I was like, ah, what, 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 should I just make something up? Um, I was, I think mid nineties, um, and like the internet. So, so, so something I was thinking about actually is like the internet in the mid nineties is kind of like apps today in some ways, or actually I would even say the internet today is kind of like apps today where it's like, I don't know if this is true for you guys. Like you probably spend like 90 percent of your time on like five websites um and it's like you know those really are capturing like most of your usage the same way you spend like 90 percent of your time on like five apps and so it's like you get on the internet in the 90s you're like wow there's websites like what should i go to like there's all these websites out there i gotta like see what the cool ones are but you're like you know you're like a kid and you're like i guess disney.com yeah <laughs> it's like what else are you gonna get like what are the websites you want you don't want to go to like the hyundai you know like sure. website right um so it's like that and then you're like okay this is kind of lame you know it's just like a bunch of tiles or whatever um so you, you end up spending like most of your time in like the aol like chat rooms and it's like which is of course is the twitter of like the mid 90s it's just a bunch of people hanging out uh using you know crazy anon uh you know, accounts and then posting lewd and vulgar things to each other to try to get attention. Um, so Twitter, basically, um, without the character count. And so, like, yeah, my earliest memories are definitely spending, uh, I think, a lot of time in, uh, yeah, in the uh, the AOL chat rooms. Um, and yeah, you know, like as I, I I think I was lucky, like as a young boy, that I no one seemed to care about me. <laughs> <laughs> obviously i would lie i'd be like i'm not eight i'm 13 you know like, yeah I'm, yeah yeah like on the internet i can be old you know like a cool cool 13 year old um so I spent a lot of time learning how to lie on the internet uh larping from an early age um sure. yeah <laughs> for, and, performing and how, my way through those chat rooms <laughs> for sure and how do you think that that has changed or stayed the same over time like you you brought up the relation to Twitter and how there was this kind of online uh, town square, so to speak. And that has kind of changed over time from AOL to Twitter. But other than that, how do you think like your view of the internet has evolved or what has surprised you over the years? Yeah, I think I'm always shocked by people who think the internet is not for LARPing. Um, I remember I got, I got, I was one of the first users of Facebook, actually. This is aging me. Uh, I was one of the first users of Facebook and like in year one, and my friends and I got it, and we thought it was, like, the most hilarious thing. We were like, let's all pretend to be football players. Yeah. So we got, like, a bunch of, like, you know, pictures of, like, dumb football players and just LARPed our way. And we were like, this is so funny that you can just, like, create communities of, like, pretending that you're, like, in any way authentic online. And for us, it was this whole joke that anyone would ever take this thing seriously and think that they were, like, actually acting out their real selves. So we just pretended to be people. We staged drama like uh all of which i'm still doing on twitter to a great degree like it was just like like it was so clear that the internet was just totally inauthentic performance of yourself to get attention and so like you know i just always treated it like it was musical theater 
Uh, and so I think I've been shocked that there are people who don't do that <laughs> and actually like yeah. think that this is like an authentic version of yourself that you're presenting. And it and it and it, that it's moved that direction as well, where now we live in this kind of terrifying world where it's like the people's real life identities is imitating the crazed people that they're become online, where it's like not only have you become a crazy person online, but now you have to start acting like that in real life uh, as well, which is kind of terrifying. The other, the other early internet thing I was going to say is like, um, there's this Avenue Q, I probably shouldn't share this, but this is fine. Uh, there's this Avenue Q song from like 2002 that was like, the internet is for porn. Uh, a beautiful song about, you know, the primary use case of the internet being porn. Um, and it's like, definitely like, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, that was pretty true. Like, you know, the internet wasn't really good for anything except finding things you couldn't get in, in um in real life so there's that great like interview right where like uh david letterman is interviewing um bill gates and is like oh yeah what's this internet thing for like what i'm gonna find and like bill gates is like well you can find other people who like share your interests like you know they they also like cigars i like cigars i'll, I'll meet those other people too and you know letterman's like oh yeah that's like a great yeah you know use case is like <laughs> a bunch of cigar people can find each other but it's like you know Something I think about a lot is like, you know, I grew up in a small town in a, in a small high school and it's like, like most small towns and small high schools, there's two types of interests that people have overwhelmingly and that's theater and sports. And that's like, those kind of dominate the school environment. And you think about like with the internet's useful, you know, if you had like some weird esoteric interest outside of like sports or theater, you probably weren't going to be able to find it there. You know, we weren't big enough to have like a Dungeons and Dragons club, you know, never mind having like a you know, like a, a crypto club or whatever, you know, like sure, uh, sure. or programming. So like you want to you have some esoteric interest. The Internet's really good for that long tail of like subcultures where you trade in, you know, finding someone around you who shares your background, but probably doesn't trade, you know, share your interests. And on the Internet, you find someone who doesn't share your background, but probably does share your interests instead. And so like, you know, porn was this like initial use case in the early 2000s because it was this thing that you couldn't get locally, right? Like it was like fundamentally something you wanted to do privately and like, you know, and find online. Um, and that's very similar to the rise of crypto being through like drugs, right? Like illicit use cases are always like when you see illicit use cases, you should be like, this is probably a transformative technology. Like this is probably going to change things. But, but I do think what stayed the same is like, despite the fact that porn is no longer the primary use case of the internet, well, maybe it is, but like, assuming it's not, <laughs> it, it, is it like, you know, what the internet is still really good for are these subcultures and subcommunities. And that's a long way of saying like a lot of my interest, I think in DAOs and tokenized communities is really building the next iteration of that, where you can start building incentive models for what the internet is fundamentally good for, which is subcultures. So anyway, Absolutely. that's my end of my rant. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I think you, you brought up a lot of really interesting things. I think the the first is the similarity of the old internet to quote unquote, the new internet that we're seeing today. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we've seen the kind of pendulum swing from decentralized communities to centralized platforms back to decentralized communities again. And you've you've written a lot about this uh, and, and you tweet a lot about kind of new age communities, cults and, and the like. And you texted me a bit about how you think that crypto is prone to cult like behavior. Why do you think that's the case? And can you say more about that? Yeah, first of all, I, I think. Um like everything in 2022 is pretty prone to cults. Like, you know, the breakdown over the past 10 years of like centralized authority and the rise of user generated content has meant that we just don't trust these kind of like old institutions, right, as arbiters of belief systems. So like um, we're all turning locally to like, you know, these more decentralized P2P kind of networks of like, 
hearsay online, citizen journalism, you know, et cetera. And that's not just crypto, like that's across the board that like people are looking to user generated content. And so that's much more cult like, like you look to a local authority figure within a much smaller community to set what you believe is true, even though you know it's outside the bounds of mainstream belief because you don't trust the mainstream. So like cults are just kind of like, you know, they're predicated on being anti-mainstream, but they also are mainstream <laughs> in 2022. Uh, like most things, yeah, most things are cult. But like, I think crypto is especially prone to it um, because like the type of people who join cults tend, you know, people think that like people who join cults are gullible or they're like naive or they're like, um, and it's actually not really true. It's like people who join cults tend to be really skeptical. Um, they're really skeptical of the status quo. They don't believe the status quo. They're actually, so they're like, they're already, you know, looking to poke holes through things a lot of the times, right? They're also idealists. Like they tend to believe in like a transformative new system that is much better than the current one. They tend to have a lot of gripes with reality that are usually very well founded as well. And then look towards some sort of savior figure, you know, idealistic way of, of overcoming that. Um, and they tend to be people who are, are dislocated um, and so are don't necessarily have stable homes, stable families, um, stable environments. And so they're looking to find those things as well. And so, like, what is someone on the Internet today? <laughs> like, you know, it, people living on the Internet, like that's, you know, you're fundamentally already dislocated from your like physical reality. You're, you're you know, you're in this like virtual reality all the time. And, you know, people in crypto, like, are largely nomadic, um, are very idealist, are very skeptical of the current system, have, like, a belief about this transformative technology that can really change things, and are looking to build small communities with others uh, who share these beliefs. So it's, like, it's it's very, very prone, I think, to cult-like behavior. And, of course, like, cults are based on some localized centralization, right, of, like, a local figure who commands you and tells you what to believe. DAOs should not be based on that. They should be based in some ways on like P2P economies and like, you know, equal contribution of contributors. But we are humans and we are tribal. And so it, it very quickly can devolve into these things um, where, you know, yeah, if you're a cult-like personality, crypto is a good place to be. Like, it's pretty easy to find a bunch of people who are idealists who you can probably speak their language, exploit them, get them to believe, you know, what you believe, not, you know, not to identify any, you know, major figures here <laughs> who might have just destroyed our industry um but yeah it's like it's at every level you know right sure. like sbf no it was no one's idea of a cult leader but he was 100 yeah. percent a cult leader yeah it's 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 Do interesting you... you bring up this oh god martin yeah i was gonna say um this is more of a kind of a hypothetical but connecting back to the also the comments about being anonymous and kind of creating fun pe personalities on the internet it feels like there's some sort of thread between like these anon figures on Twitter who like have hundreds of thousands of followers and like can yeah. basically like direct money or attention to any single thing. Um, right. If you were if you were to start a crypto cult, how would you mm. do it? Hmm. Like like assuming I'm a bad actor, like I'm malicious. Um, I would say ethically maybe neutral. Not as well. Yeah, I guess that probably means. Well, bad I'm not going to start a cult. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I gotta, I gotta be a little nefarious here. Come on, Martin. Like, well, yeah. Let me. Okay. Let me be evil. Okay. 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 Yeah. Let's say bad actor, somewhat narcissistic, like just wants power yeah. or money. Right. Right. How do you do it? Yeah. How would you do it? I don't know that you do it by trying to build a giant following. Actually, I don't know that giant followings equate to being a good cult leader. Um, you know, part of being a cult leader is that you've traded off scale for um, passion of belief. 
So in other words, like a religion is like reaches tons of people who like go to church once a week and they're like, yeah, this is part of our life, but it's not our main focus. A cult is like, this is your entire life, right? And it's a much smaller set that's easier to coordinate. So like being, you know, having a giant following online of people who like, yeah, they read you a few times a day and they think about what you have to say. That's not really building like a strong, passionate people, you know, a community of people who are, who are right behind you. So you might be able to do it that way. That might be like leverage to do it, but you're going to need to actually create some sort of like tight community of people who are like, you know, are believers. I do think the weakness of the comparison of cults and crypto is that it is really hard to be totally focused on a cult when you are online because you're distracted and you're not there in person and there's nothing really being required of you physically. Um, right. But like, yeah, if you want to, if you want to set up that, that cult, you might start off by building a following, but what you really need to do is get people really excited about your project, create a lot of FOMO, uh, you know, probably do a lot of the, you know, like fake trades um, where you're like buying up your own work from alternate <laughs> accounts and like showing that everyone else is in it. And like, yeah, getting everyone like excited to be part of something that they don't feel like that they feel is too good for them. And then it's it's all about gatekeeping, right? Like, like you really want to make people feel really special for being part of something. Where it's like, yeah, they have to buy their way in, but that's not going to guarantee that they're going to get in. And then you have to like, you know, really show that they're getting to be part of a cool crew of like special people, et cetera. So there's there's a lot of, yeah, it's hard to do, but it's also possible to do because it requires a mix, I think, of what I think of as the three incentives, like financial incentives, social incentives, reputational incentives. And it's like, you can put all of these at play to be like, yeah, we well, got to buy your way in, but you also have to be part of the cool kids and be, you know, recommended. And you also are going to build a cool reputation for yourself if you do this. And like Web3 really enables all three of these things to happen. So it would probably be leveraging all three of those incentive mechanisms. What do you think? What's the difference between social and reputational incentives? Because to me, those those feel like the same thing. Can you can go a little deeper on that? Yeah. So a, a social incentive would be like relationship building. It's like a chance to hang out with your friends, do something fun with them, compete with them, um, build. Yeah, just build a relationship, right? A reputational incentive is your ability to build out a reputation for yourself that will get you access and opportunities in the future. Um, so saying like, I've contributed to this project, I've built this thing, uh, I voted this many times, like all of those things, right, are building out like your on-chain reputation in a way that like can get you discounts perhaps in the future or airdrops or like access to new communities or whatever it is. Um, I would say like social is like very process-based. And like reputation is maybe a little bit more like ends based. Like it's it's about the the opportunity you get out of that. Whereas the social is the opportunity itself. It's like the the chance to hang out with friends and do things that are meaningful in the moment for you. Yeah, social feels like two directional and reputational is just like one directional, right? It's just like what do people think of you? That's probably true. Yeah, that's probably a good way to think about it too. David, you brought up an interesting point that is is sitting in my head, the kind of tension between the types of people that generally join cults, internet communities, whatever you want to call them, and the resulting organizational complexity or coordination complexity that results from that, yeah. right? Like yeah. the people who want to join a cult or the people who want to join a community generally have gripes with reality. They want to change the world in some way. But then what we've seen in the past is that when you get too many cooks in the kitchen, it's really hard to make any like solid decision that everybody can agree on in some capacity. And so there's a lot of people that would say that, oh, DAOs have failed. I think all of us here would argue that they're probably just a bit too early. 
but but you have some strong thoughts on on the fi- quote unquote failure of DAOs, um, and I think you think regulation may be a good thing for them. What what can you say about that? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's there's a there's a bunch of different tangents here. Um, you know, one is that um, what's that line like Hinge uses where it's like you know if you're successful in this app you'll leave it. Maybe it's Cinder says this, like one of those data. Yeah, apps, right? we want Where you to like, delete the app or something. Yeah, right, because you found the other person. Like, I, I think DAOs might kind of take that stance a bit more. Like a successful DAO might be one where you meet other people who share your interests and then you go form a sub DAO. And you like leave that main group because you found the people who are meaningful to you and you want to be with through that bigger project. And then maybe you go and you help build stuff together for that bigger project and accrue value to that token or whatever. But like maybe maybe the you know a DAO is really powerful actually if it breaks up into sub DAOs. And part of the reason I'm thinking this is like to go back to that '90s you know like chat room or or Twitter right. It's like fundamentally yeah you start off on these platforms to like meet as many people as possible. But your goal is really not to be friends with all those people. Is to filter quickly to find the people you actually care about and want to build relationships with. Um, I think that goes to the 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 failure of DAOs to date, which is like they've been really good at acquisition and really bad at retention. And the reason they've been really bad at retention is because they've been really bad at building relationships. There's really nothing for communities to do, right? Like a lot of what we're building at Joked is just a way to say, like, let's give your communities something to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Let you actually participate <laughs> yeah. or like, you know, submit or share ideas, right? In a meaningful way that is actionable, builds your reputation, um, can be acted on, et cetera, right? So like, um, I think, yeah, there, there's just been a lack of genuine relationship building. And part of that is also just like tokens where they've been really good at, you know, acquiring users because people buy them for the financial incentive, enjoy the discord. But like that's mercenary behavior that doesn't really lead people to stay. Um, and there hasn't really been anything for communities to do, like except own a token. And it's like that's not that's not a powerful community. So like, yeah, if anything, we have we have to learn more from cults because it's like we're, these are these are bad cults. Like they haven't been very good at it. The, the regulation piece, I think, is also that like a lot of DAOs are are shockingly centralized um like like way more centralized than any web 2 company would be right so you have like founders who own most of the tokens they're then supporting initiatives for themselves to pay themselves out from the treasury um and it's like you know this is not technically a rug like they created the project themselves they've built a powerful community of people who support them and are buying their token but it's like fundamentally that you know they're just supporting their own causes and they're not really listening to the community or giving the community anything to do as well so this, this again goes to that issue like communities have nothing to do but but part of the reason communities have nothing to do is because founders tend to be pretty you know egocentric and are using the token in ways that are financially benefiting them right to pay themselves out from the treasury that raises a whole host of security issues in the u.s because once you're using a token to vote for initiatives to pay yourself out in any capacity you're basically you know dealing with some potential security, right? So I do think like, you know, that's where regulation can be powerful. Um, you know, I would like to think that crypto should be able to regulate itself. We should be able to like set up on-chain, you know, structures or just fork or not need outside regulation. But to the extent that regulation is helpful, it's, it's in saying like, actually, no, founders should not be able to just financially benefit themselves with the token. The community should be the one who has power. Like for this not to be a security, communities should be effectively choosing who the core team is. And communities should be hiring the core team and then delegating power to them and then choosing how to pay them out. And that way, the token holders who are making who are voting are not directly financially benefiting from it. Uh, and I do think that's a good thing. Like, you know, you shouldn't 
token holders probably shouldn't be financially benefiting directly. Um, you know, and that raises values about, you know, questions about like, what's the value of a token then, et cetera. But like, yeah, fundamentally, I think, you know, that kind of regulation will help communities actually have greater say in creating models where they are hiring the core team and the core team actually is subservient to the community um, of, of token holders rather than vice versa. That's interesting. And so if we, you know, just strongman the pro-regulation argument there, how would you strongman the anti-regulation argument or the argument that, you know, crypto can regulate itself, tokens are this amazing mechanism for people to, you know, engage in governance in a way where they can solve these problems themselves? Like, what is the, I guess, what is the argument there? And, and how would people think about that? Yeah, I, well, I think the argument is like, you know, the best ultimately the the best structures will win and that might take 20, 10 or 20 years but like if you're a founder making sole decisions with the token like there might be cases where you have some really brilliant founders who make really great decisions on on behalf of the project and that goes really well but even even when that's the case like why would anyone want to own the token you know like what does the token represent if they don't get a say in this and they're not getting to be part of a community where they have impact like it's not really a dao it's just a company at that point right um but but I think the you know the other argument is like if we really believe in DAOs and we really believe that like forms of community governance and those might be hierarchical and delegated and um, you know et cetera but like we really believe the community governance is a better model for running projects then those are the ones that'll win and like they will win because they have better incentive models for people to buy the token and get involved in the project and build and build out the value of that token as well um, because they're actually open and, you know, not based on this fundamental inequality of a founder controlling all the, all the token too. So like, you know, this is, I guess, almost like a free market kind of, you know, incentive mechanism that, that over time value should accrue to the ones that actually are best run and the ones that are best run should be the ones that are, are, you know, um, community focused and community led, yeah. um, in, in some ways. That's really interesting. Cause I mean, we, we look throughout history of, of capitalism mostly, and you see that, success has generally gone along with the centralization of power. And the biggest thing that we are saying here with crypto is that it is completely that shifts the power. Maybe. I don't, I don't know that that's true. I mean, like empires were very much based on decentralization, right? Oh, like, like empire, like, like, I mean, it depends how you define it. Empires, like, you know, one of the things they had to do is they had to make sure that there was like a unified language and a unified, you know, measurement system unified roads right with the same with you know unified train tracks like to that degree yeah there's this kind of like you know imposition but you know most successful empires were you know would would ensure that local communities still kept their cultures their beliefs right they had their local leaders who were delegates to represent them to and and they were really like coalitions right uh, in which they're saying look we're going to create coordination systems for you to coordinate with the rest of the group coordination systems are the measurement system and the roads right but like fundamentally, you know, um, you should still be able to maintain your own core beliefs, etc. And that makes sense if you're like the Roman Empire, because it's just like you didn't have the technology to be able to like, you know, control everyone within these regions. You really had to trust that they were like going to want to stay within that culture and not rebel against you because they had their own beliefs protected, etc. So like, you know, the imperialism and like um, colonialism and the destruction of like local cultures you know especially like i'd say french and africa would be like the major example of that like a lot of that is is coming out of like new technologies that allow for for better coordination in some ways um but are really disastrous like long term as, as well so like i don't know the, the pendulum ships a lot i'm not trying to present a defensive empires either no, 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 but like I hear but um but uh, you know it's 
it, it's it's a complicated thing where there's always been this back and forth, I think. And like, yeah, like what is the history of the U.S.? It's a history of like local government versus federal government, you know, for 300 years of like who has power here? Is it states? Is it, you know, or is it the federal government? Um, like this is not an exact decentralization versus centralization argument, but it's like it's very core to the ways that like there's been this massive tension within U.S. politics that continues to dominate right today um, between these different kind of systems. You know, to what degree do we want direct democracy, et cetera? So like, yeah, my belief in DAOs is really in thinking, actually, we can think smaller. Like if we can go smaller, we can have more direct democracy when you only have to coordinate 10 or 100 people than when you have to coordinate 300 million. You can't have direct, direct democracy at scale, but you can have it in smaller ways. And if we can create these smaller communities and then have these like, you know, rails for them to coordinate with each other, I think that that's, that creates like a lot more individual impact, enables a lot more individual impact. I have a more of a zooming out question, but you have really interesting takes on all this stuff. Like, and, and you're able to connect dots to things in like history and technology and law and all this stuff. And I'm just curious, like, what is your background? How did you end up here? Because I think a lot of people in this space just like stumbled in. And so a lot of how they perceive crypto is just within crypto. And I think you have this ability to zoom out and like, you know, we'll talk about your, your post on railroads that I thought was like fascinating because it connects these dots that I didn't even know about the railways like bubble of the, you know, 1800s. Um, so yeah, like how did you end up here? Um, it, it doesn't have to be like a long answer, but I'm just personally curious. Uh, primarily by being ADHD, I think, <laughs> like, uh, you know, being like really distracted by like a lot of broad issues and then connecting dots between them without ever really going that deep on any of them. <laughs> yeah. You've gone pretty deep on a lot of the stuff, man. It's probably my main answer. Um, there, there's, there's two, two answers for my background that might be relevant here. Um, one is that I ran a, a tutoring agency for years and this is um, really my first company where we created the highest paying tutoring firm in the world. Uh, and I also worked as a tutor for a decade. And so I was tutoring every subject, um, like all the way through. So like, yeah, I, I, it's, it's almost like I got to go to school for an extra 10 years, which is pretty cool. Um, so that's maybe one answer for that. I think the, the other one is like, um, I also come from a background, uh, about a decade ago, um, deep in like film art and music, um, and doing like a lot of criticism, uh, like and writing on those subjects and like one of the reasons that i would say like movies in particular always really appealed to me was because when you watch a film you can watch it through so many lenses like you could watch it through the lens of history to be like here's you know how it's conveying the zeitgeist of the time or here's how it's representing like the historical production you know um of hollywood or whatever system created it at the time here's how it's capturing that time right you can watch it through the lens of aesthetics you know, in terms of like lighting sound uh, and how it's done, you can watch it through, you know, narrative in terms of storytelling, psychology, et cetera. Um, and and so like being able like movies were always really nice for me because they were they were this bastard art that was just like um, allowed me. There's always a way into a movie like, you know, it can be absolute dog shit in how it looks, but there's going to be something interesting about like why it was made or, you know, the history of that. Right. Um, like. And I think crypto is very similar to that. Like, like crypto, crypto is this thing where it just is a, it's at the intersection of all of these kind of converging interests that it tends to draw like a lot of people who are like really generalists, right? Like there, you can always find your way into crypto through history. You can find your way into it through economics. You can find your way into it through art, um, through culture, like you through, you know, social community, sociology, like, like whatever your interest is, there's probably, you know, tech, obviously math, cryptography, like 
there's a way that crypto is interesting, not only for each one of these fields, but the way that it connects them all together. And it's the first time I've really felt that way about anything since movies to be like, okay, this is this is like a field for generalists um, because it allows you to connect the dots between all these things as well. Um, and of, of course, there's also the most brilliant people in the space who are so deep on cryptography, et cetera, who are here. And it's just like a privilege to be able to, you know, like even read what they're writing every day. Um, but I think it's I think it's a really cool space for that reason of like finding a lot of people who are like, I don't belong to one thing, you know, to go against my cult argument. Like like this is really for people who are like, I don't believe in just one thing. I'm, I'm more interested in the intersection um, of of these industries than in like any individual one. I, I feel the same way, actually, about um, crypto is just like there's like any opportunity to do basically anything. Um, and there's just so many people coming from different backgrounds that makes it like it feels like you can have your cake and eat it too and everything you study and learn about somehow connects to crypto in some way which yeah. uh, i i relate i don't i've recently i've been wondering if i have adhd i don't think i have it but uh i definitely feel the thing <laughs> about just like just being just getting sucked into different threads all the time and and i feel like the space like allows and encourages that in some ways yeah bastard arts i'm 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 very into <laughs> <laughs> for sure for sure I know we talked about the the railroads a bit, and I want to double click on that. But it seems like one of the things that you keep talking about, David, is this idea of like, you know, forking or replication of some kind. And, you know, Bology talks about this a lot, too, where, you know, you can judge kind of the quality of an academic research paper of some kind based on independent replication. Like how many times has somebody basically taken that piece, written a, a criticism of it or otherwise forked it in some way? And obviously, this idea of forking normally comes from code. And so you've talked about this a lot in terms of the best communities being the ones who are most forked or, or have the most niches that, uh, that stem from it. How does your kind of railroad analogy or the history of railroads relate to this, if at all? Um, and what can you say about the connection between railroads and the internet? Yeah, that's, that, that, that's a good question. Um, that's, actually, that's actually probably a prime difference in some ways is like the the history of railways right is that like even you had these like man the history of railways is so interesting so like um <laughs> you have like these different gauges right and so like even finding like a standard track length in order for different um railroads to be able to all travel across the country on different lines it's almost like the discussion we have today about multi-chain right it's like mm. yeah we're trying to find these ways to like you know, get one thing from one chain over to another, but it's obviously so much easier when you just have one chain that everything can operate on for composability, right? Uh, and and I think that's that's probably the more you know pressing analogy in some ways. Um, I don't think, yeah, I I don't know that the 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 railways enabled forking exactly. I'd have to think more about that one. Um, what it did do is enabled, I think, like entire new industries. It also, but if anything, it was a standardizing force um, in some ways. So this might be a big difference, right? Is that like um, one of the like one of my favorite parts of the history of the railway is that you didn't really have standard time in the U.S. until you had the railway, um, because there was no reason for one person on the West Coast to have to coordinate exactly second by second with someone on the East Coast. But once you had railways and they're all passing all the way through. You have to make sure they're not going to, you know, hit each other. So they have to make sure that they're being like everything is being perfectly coordinated according to the standard time system. And so, like, if you stood on a hill in like the early 1800s in like a small town or like, you know, near small towns, you would hear the bells ringing out the hour in totally different times from one town to the next. Um, 
because they were just, you know, going off of like roughly when the hour was and they would listen for each other. Right. So you would hear like one town would listen for the next town over. And then when it started ringing its bells, they would start ringing their bells. And so, you know, you had this like kind of P2P system of like, you know, people figuring out what time it was roughly without any real discernment because there was no need for that to be standardized. And once the railway came in, all time, time was standardized. And that's the first time we had standard time and time zones, right? All of these things as well. Um, And so I think like those are the kind of parallels that are probably most relevant, you know, to the internet and to crypto is thinking like, how is this like forcing new standardization of data? new accounting practices being standardized, right? Like new data transparency. I think what will get really interesting is with content um, where AI will feed into this really powerfully to be able to say like, look, if all of our content is being stored in like a data storage blockchain, like are we like AI can make sense of what's a movie, what's an artwork, you know, what is movies about Ronald Reagan? And it can start indexing all of these things in ways like financial blockchains have standardized data because there's very little data you need for a financial transaction. It's like who sent it, who received it, how much, when. Um, with content, it gets much, much more explosive in terms of the variables there. But AI can make sense of that a lot too. And so I think like that's what we're going to see is like the standardization of data um, that really enables us then to like have our own contributor profiles where we've like aggregated all of our on-chain activity and like build out a profile for ourselves. Like that, that's what will be powerful. The forking permissionless thing, I think like to the degree that's relevant um, for railroads, it's the idea that like anyone can now build businesses off of this thing. And that's not totally true for a railway the way it is for crypto. But like I do think there's a way in which like, you know, the railway like allowing you to transport to anyone else in the country allows you to massively scale your business. Right. Um, in, in a way you couldn't do before, because now you can reach anybody. And I think like that, that kind of like permissionlessness in that sense of being able to reach anyone is true for crypto, too. The permissionlessness about being able to build on top of anything is pretty new. Um, and that's pretty unique to crypto, I think, and pretty special property that I don't know. I don't know we can map on historically. And that's also what enables forking, too. Yeah. So you talked about like, you know, you talked about forking, which is this like kind of divergence from the mean of some kind. You've talked about. AI's relation to crypto, which, you know, is normally seen as a centralizing force in some way, you know, aggregating uh, and standardizing, of course, but really aggregating all of this data into one place that we can, you know, run analyses on it. How do you view this kind of tension of centralizing versus decentralizing forces in crypto more broadly? And how do you think kind of those things play together? Yeah, um, I mean, that that's kind of the irony, right, is like there will be a way in which like this will be massively centralizing in terms of standardizing data, I think. But what's strange about this is like, you know, aggregation will probably be really powerful, right? Aggregating liquidity, but also being able to aggregate like all of the data in a single place with like a, you know, firmly accepted standard for contributor profiles and, and, and data will be really important for very least for everyone else to be able to build on top of, too. Um, so yeah, there will be this way, you know, it's not quite centralizing necessarily, but it's standardizing, right. To create these, like, or at least central standards, right. Um, to, to operate off of, I think, but again, what's crazy about this is like AI will probably invent most of these standards. Like it'll be AI that is like coming along and saying, okay, here's how we decided to catalog, you know, the, the, um, you know, these different pieces of content to show the similarities between them so that we can group them together. But, you know, the hope there also with AI and, and, and with crypto is that it can be more malleable. Like if someone is putting in a query for a really particular site of commonalities, AI will be able to find that commonality, even though no one has done it before. And so there might be a way for people to like find new commonalities and, and in a way that they're not stuck within 
you know, a very limited framework of saying you can only search by these four criteria, these four variables. Yeah, that's fascinating. You must be thinking about this a lot, Zach, <laughs> with what you're doing. Yeah, I, I definitely am thinking about it a lot. I don't have any fully fleshed out opinions on it yet, but it's it's definitely a pressing force in my mind and something I think about a lot in terms of, you know, there are centralizing forces or standardizing forces, which I think is a better term and I'm going to start using. Yeah. And then there's decentralizing forces and the strong human nature of wanting to band together with people of a similar niche of some kind. And I think when you put those two things together, you get a lot of unintended consequences that I'm having trouble, you know, putting into words. But that's what's so interesting to me, I think. I think Danny, uh, Danny from Ceramic had a really good way of putting this where he's like, look, like on the one hand, if you have centralization, you have like these core leaders who everyone believes and trusts as experts that obviously like dissipated over the past 10 years, rise of populist politics, user generated content, right? Like all of that has led to decentralization. But the problem is we don't know who to trust um, because we don't have coordination systems, you know? So we're just like trusting whatever we see on the internet and whoever is there. And it's like, you know, we've gone from realizing the experts are wrong and that we can't trust them and they're lying to us to turning to people who like have no credibility whatsoever. And so like, you know, you really need both. Like you, you need decentralization. You need to be able to say a lot of the people who really have expertise are people on the ground who are not just the people who went to Ivy League schools because they were rich or whatever, you know, like they really are the people who like can actually have lived experience and have dealt with these things. And, you know, and that's important. At the same time, you can't just trust anecdotal data as as a basis for, you know, your beliefs. So so like decentralization is important if you have coordination systems for those communities to coordinate together and coordinate truth. Right. And like what's really missing is that coordination piece. So like standardization, I think, is actually like massively important. Um, you know, having like a single chain as like, you know, uh, a source of truth is like limiting but it's also really valuable right if there's a single place where all of these um you know like transactions are settling to where they can all then draw on each other to, to use the crypto analogy but i think like yeah within you know our systems as well like yeah being able to have better ways of discerning what is true and who to trust is also really important if we're going to move towards a world of decentralization uh, and we see and crypto deals with this on every day like crypto is like yeah we're creating a trustless system and then where does it go wrong every time we try to trust somebody um, which makes perfect sense. If you created a trustless system, of course it's going to fail when you have to trust people. Like, um, but like you know, every time we have to trust anybody in crypto, it goes very, very wrong um, because we haven't created these really good standards for for arbitrating truth. I think. Yeah, that's a really good point. It seems like there's a lot of these tensions in crypto where there's a force pulling one direction and a counterbalancing force in, in the other. And one of those that you talk a lot about is, is this idea that, you know, one of the affordances of smart contracts and crypto more broadly is the ability to take royalties on anything yeah. in perpetuity. And at the yeah. same time, because those smart contracts are open source, anybody yeah. can fork them, institute a cheaper fee, and then you get a race to the bottom on fees, which arguably means that, you know, monetizing smart contracts via fees is not the way to go. How do you think about this these two forces uh, at play with one another and the idea of like kind of web three moats. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like being able to set royalties is like huge. And we've, we've talked about it being this big thing within crypto in the sense that like, you know, artists now get a cut of the resale and that's like, that's true. But I think, I think royalties are much bigger than that um, because like what royalties do is they decouple 
um, creation from distribution. So like if you can automatically set a royalty anytime anyone uses your work, if you're like a DJ or you're like, you know, you created a beat and anytime a DJ remixes it, you get a cut, right? Um, or, you know, you put out an article and anytime anyone quotes it and makes money off of it, you get a cut, right? Or you created a sweatshirt and like anytime anyone sells it, you get a cut. You've decoupled creation from distribution, right? Where it's like now anyone who's recreating it or just selling it directly um, will give you a cut. But it also means that anyone can recreate it or remix it and, and distribute it and sell it as well. So like you're no longer responsible for that piece because anyone can set up a shop. Anyone can remix your work and you should be able to get a cut for it. Right. Um, and like that's, I think, really powerful. Like, you know, we it, it's like creators have been vertically integrated on the Internet. Like you're responsible for creating your own shop for your own goods on Etsy or Shopify. Right. And I think like royalties allow you to kind of decouple that and break that up in a way which is really powerful for distribution. And it's important to remember remixing is also a form of distribution, too. Like TikTok has taught us this. Right. Someone like does a duet like they're also distributing your work. Um, so I think this is really powerful, but the, the, the problem is like provenance, like how do you know, you know, who the original creator was and how do you ensure they're getting cut when you could just fork that smart contract and cut them out? And, you know, there's some sort of like, you know, uh, like honesty system in place here, but I think like that's again where AI becomes really powerful because like AI, you know, if you upload your, your content in Arweave with a cut enabled and AI can tell where the provenance was, right? Um, of like who originally created this work, um, then it can probably also attribute royalties so that if someone came along later and distorted it or remixed it or changed it without the royalties, like AI could probably say like, fuck you, you know what? You don't get anything. And actually you're going to get slashed. Um, so you could also create like, you know, other tools for like eigenlayer kind of systems of like, you know, opting in, you know, for these like to back the AI system and AI slashes people who are like, you know, who are, who are being dishonest actors within this system. I think there will be solutions for this, um, but they're probably years away. And like, um, it's going to be a while for that to happen. And I mean, like, look, what I'm talking about is like this cool vision of AI establishing who created the original beat for, you know, like, and then paying them out. It's like, dude, we live in a world right now where it's like, if you wanted to sell a sweatshirt and crypto, you can't do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's 2022. I tried doing this last week. It's like, uh, you know, if you just want to be able to set it up to like sell, sell your sweatshirts online and like have a cut go to the creator that you can't do it. Um, it's way too complex for the world we live in. Um, so like there's, you know, some rails that we need to, we need to establish first for all of this stuff. But like, I do think, I do think the solutions are out there. They're just going to take, they're going to take a while to implement. Yeah, I, I kind of want to go back to the railways conversation earlier because you wrote this really great post about um, the railway bubbles, which I didn't even realize there was one, much less two of the 1800s, and kind of the connection to crypto. And, and I thought it was a really amazing, really amazing article, and I definitely recommend people go read it. Um, Thank you. I'm kind of curious, yeah, what, what prompted that, that article or that, that blog post for you? And yeah, if you could summarize it just kind of briefly. Yeah, this is, I mean, it comes out of Carlota Perez's work, um, which I've been kind of obsessed with for a while. I wrote a bunch on it last year and then finally returned to it this year. Um, you know, and and part part of her point is that you have these bubbles uh, over and over again um, of inflated expectations about technology where, you know, investors get so excited by this transformative technology, they pour all their money into it, um, and then uh, the bubble collapses because the technology just isn't really ready yet, right? Um, and part of her point is to say, you know, 
yeah, we tend to think like bubbles are tulips or something. And we make fun of bubbles for being like, you know, these crazed, uh, you know, like uh, mobs going after, you know, whatever speculative uh, possibility they can pursue. But that's not really what bubbles are like, like bubbles actually tend to correspond to really transformative technologies like bubbles tend to correlate to game changers in the industry. And it's just like the, the, the issue is just that they put in more money than they can get back out um fundamentally and so like the issue isn't the technology itself the issue is the valuation um if that makes sense and this is kind of like her argument and and so i was trying to to extrapolate that to to railroads and where we are now and i think like it's been this interesting thing in investing in the past couple years um because you could fundamentally like bet on hype and make a lot of money uh at least on paper right and it's like even though the valuations were so crazy like people, they would still get even crazier. And so it's just like, it was a question of like, when would this pop, right? But like, when you're seeing that as an investor, you're like, yeah, maybe this doesn't make sense mathematically. But on the other hand, if I know that this is just continually self-fulfilling cycle of like valuations going up and up, I don't want to miss out on that either. It's like, even if you're a skeptic, you don't have to be part of the mob mentality. You don't have to be like, you know, um, totally convinced these valuations make sense. You could just be very pragmatic and still participate in a bubble to say, like, bubbles are actually the best time to make money. Like, um, you just have a bunch of, you know, dumb money pouring in and I can make money off of that, especially if I can get secondaries. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you know, I think the the interesting question now is, well, it's twofold. And like, um, one is, can we get more money out that we've put in? Like if, you know, the big funds in crypto have put in like, you know, three, four billion dollars or putting in three or four billion dollars. Like, let's say they're taking 10% of a company. So effectively, they're like, that's $40 billion each, you know, of like valuation. I don't know how much total money there is in the crypto ecosystem. But like, let's say there's like, at least $10 billion being deployed. Like, so you're saying at least $100 billion of value needs to be there in the in the crypto ecosystem, right? Um, for you to have 0% returns. And it's like, you know, is there a risk, right? First of all, that that value isn't there. We've put in all this money and even though crypto is transformative and game changing and amazing it also is reducing costs of service tremendously doesn't have recurring revenue might not be massively money making um and actually might end up at cheaper valuations especially as interest rates go up right than like previous services so like will will you be able to get your money out um is the first question and the second question is did because these things are all psychological, because a pragmatist investor might say, I'm going to put into a bubble because everyone else is putting in a bubble. I might say, I might not deploy because I know that no one else is deploying. Like, did did the rush to invest in crypto actually really hurt crypto? Like, like did putting all of this money in create a bubble that then had to pop, that then had to lead to a total loss of confidence in the entire space that could set us back for years? And so, like, could the people who saw that crypto is transformative be totally right about that bet, make the right bet at an early point on a game-changing technology actually hurt the same thing that they're betting on and be right at the same time? Like, and I think that that, that's the interesting thing with the railroads is, like, it really shows you you can be so right and so early and that not only you lose, but you cause your own industry to lose as well. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the question that we're facing right now um, for, for crypto, which is, like, you know, how much have these really well-intentioned, you know, um, like builders, investors, like actually set us back? Um, obviously, SBF has set us back. Obviously, the frauds, the hackers, you know, like the, the shit regulators have all set us back. But how much of the people who really believed in the space and were right about it? Like, have they also set us back? <laughs> um, and I think like that's 
that's the interesting question for me. I think there was one one thing that I saw in the post though that uh, you know you're not saying here that I think is interesting is is basically the software is eating the world thesis where you said but if there's one lesson of railway mania it's that when you kill a thing you love you don't really kill it at all you die as an investor for your mistakes but the technology does what it's intended to it gives no shit about you it moves on and eventually it wins. How do, how do you think that jives with any sort of investors who are investing today? Yeah, I mean, I believe crypto is going to win, like 100% believe this. Um, I might be wrong. Uh, you know, I'm often wrong. But like, I really, I really believe that. I think the question is, do the investors in crypto win? <laughs> yeah. Um, and some will, uh, and some will bounce back. And, you know, some also just have like, you know, enough legitimacy and reputation they built up for years to be able to weather it no matter what. Um, and some will make money off of this too because they've been really conservative. But there's a decent chance that a lot of really great investors are going to go down in this thing. A lot of really great funds are going to go down in this thing for being right. <laughs> and yeah. time will prove that they're right because like crypto will ultimately win. Um, but it's going to be a hard truth, you know, to sit there 10 years from now and be like, we were the ones who took the risk. Like we took a risk when no one else believed in this. And, um, and meanwhile, all the people sat on the sidelines ended up being the ones who made the money <laughs> and not us who actually believed in it. So, I, you know, I'm not saying like 100 percent certainty this is how things will play out. I think a lot of funds will be fine. I think they'll be able to weather it, um, but a lot won't. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see who continues to fall over the next year as well. Like uh, simple, simple math, right? There's just like, you know, almost every fund had at least one company that was keeping money in FTX. But they, that was like, you know, they were keeping like what, like maybe 80% of their money on FTX, not 100. So they still have runway, but they have runway for like, what, another three, six months. And then what? Like, then they might start going under. So it's like the contagion from this thing could just spread and spread. And then those funds have to mark them down. Right. And then that just changes, you know, their ability to get returns as well when they're high, great companies that just went broke because of a banking mistake. Um, so like it's... It, I'm personally expecting this thing to play out for a while, but I'm not an expert on these things and I'm often wrong. <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, this has been a incredibly wide ranging conversation. David, thanks so much for taking the time. Where can people find you on the internet? Where can they read your writing, follow you on Twitter? What's uh, all the good stuff that they should follow you on? Yeah. Uh, David Phelps dot substack dot com. Um, that, that's where I, I put the good words. <laughs> Um, at, at divine underscore economy on Twitter. That's where I put the bad words. Um, so yeah, <laughs> you can, you can pick which one you want. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, David. This is great. And to everybody listening, go give David a follow, read his work. It is amazing, amazing stuff. And until next time, we will see you later. This is a blast. Thank you guys.